Beloved, there was a time when we did not have an interest in the Savior's blood. But because of his amazing love, God made us alive. His spirit opened our eyes to see the ugliness of our sin and to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Tis mercy all, immense and free. We are saved because of his sovereign grace alone. And that is the message of the gospel. This morning as we conclude our series in the book of Haggai, I want you to hear the gospel according to Haggai. So please turn with me in your copy of the scriptures to Haggai chapter 2. Haggai chapter 2, we'll look at verses 10 to 23. Let's ask the Lord for his help as we approach his word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you boldly, not because of any righteousness in us, but because of the righteousness of our Savior. No condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. So we pray, Lord, show us your glory in the face of our Savior as we hear your word. Renew our minds that we might grow in grace and be filled with hope and encouragement to build up your church in faith and love. Do this for your glory, that it may be evident to all that the surpassing power needed to build your church belongs to you and not to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, long before the storm of COVID insanity swept across the world, and several years before the invention of Zoom, temples in India began to adapt to the changing spiritual demands of its public. India's holiest shrines, especially the large ones, developed sophisticated websites which allowed worshippers to look at their favorite idols online, uh, book an appointment to receive a blessing, and even give online while others offered e-blessings that you could simply download at the click of a button. Why make an arduous journey, a pilgrimage to a temple, when you can see your God online? But there is one remote and unique temple, a virtually undiscovered spiritual center in the striking border wilderness between the straight states of Madhya Pradesh and Rajasthan, where you can get a written certificate for holiness. Here you can come into contact with holy waters and become holy. In other words, you can wash away your sins, literally, and get a certificate to prove it. The priests who serve at that temple have kept careful records of all the certificates issued since 1947. So if you want to be a certified holy person, free from sin, it will cost you only 15 rupees. That's less than a dirham. Now that was the rate several years ago. Uh, I'm not sure how much they charge today. But this idea that holiness can be transmitted like this, in this case from the sacred waters to the being of the person, is not unique to Hinduism. Other religions also entertain the idea that holiness is a spatial construct and therefore one can sort of 
imbibe the grace of holiness through ancient relics like the personal belongings of saints and their well-preserved remains. Now, when you have this peculiar understanding of holiness, then the idea of a pilgrimage to secure blessing from a particular place becomes very important, doesn't it? But can holiness really rub off on someone like that? Well, in our passage this morning, God seems to ask his people that very question. Now, if you remember earlier, we learned that God had sent his people Israel into exile for their disobedience. But because of his gracious promises that he had made to their forefathers, he brought them back to the promised land after a long period of captivity. And the first wave, wave of exiles under the leadership of Zerubbabel had returned to the land. And their first task, of course, was to rebuild the temple that was destroyed by the Babylonians in 587 BC. And so the Israelites erected an altar they laid the foundation of the temple, but they soon got caught up with their own lives, their own selfish desires. And so God intervened. He spoke to his people through the prophet Haggai, and he charged his people with misplaced priorities. The temple was important. The temple signified God's peculiar presence and his glory and communion with his people. It was meant to remind the Gentile nations that an almighty God who redeemed his people out of Egypt, actually dwelt among his people. But the earthly temple was also significant because it was full of messianic hope. See, the temple and God's city and its elaborate system of sacrifices and offerings all pointed forward to a greater and more glorious reality of what God would do through his son. And we saw uh, last week, how Jesus is the true temple. He is the ultimate meeting place between God and man. He is the fulfillment of all that the temple and its sacrifices point to. And it is through him and him alone that we have access to God the Father. In him, we are being built up as a dwelling place for God. So the church is a holy temple, a house made of living stones. So the temple at this point in redemptive history was important moving forward for the blessing and restoration of God's people. And this was not just about the people of Israel, but also about all who God would call to himself. See, God was not just going to bring in the wealth of the nations during Haggai's time. He was also going to bring in the nations themselves. And so the building of the temple at this point in salvation history pointed forward to a great and glorious future. And so Haggai has... Just one song to sing. Build a temple. Build a temple. Build a temple. Now what was left of Solomon's temple was far from impressive. And so even though the remnant of, of God's people obeyed God's word and they started working on his house, very soon they began to get discouraged. And so God spoke. He spoke into their discouragement and he reminded them of his presence and he strengthened them through his promises. He encouraged them that he was with his people in the process of rebuilding. The Lord promised that he himself would move the nations. He would shake everything up. He would move the nations to provide materially for the building of his house, and he would fill his house with glory. Now Haggai's prophecy of, of future glory indeed became a reality in Christ, 
but it will only be fully realized when Christ returns and brings all things to its appointed end. You see, in Christ we have already received an unshakable kingdom. And one day, that kingdom will be here fully in all its glory when Jesus returns for his people. And this is what the people of God, the church, looks forward to. And as pilgrims, as we look forward to that heavenly city, we are called to obey the word of Christ, to make disciples, to exhort one another, encourage one another, to speak the truth and love to one another, to build up one another, knowing that it is Christ himself who empowers us with his presence and with his sure word of promise. I will build my church, said Jesus, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. That's Matthew 16, verse 18. You see, knowing that gets me out of bed in the morning. Gets me out of bed encouraged to disciple a brother, to counsel a hurting couple, to prepare another sermon. Knowing that Jesus is with us. And so as we go about the business of building up his church, he has promised that he will draw the nations to himself through the unique display of his glory through the church. Now, two months after they had received that encouragement from the Lord, God spoke yet again to his people through Haggai. You see, they had been rebuked for their misplaced priorities. They had been encouraged to persevere. But they also needed to understand who they were before the Lord. They needed to understand who they were before the Lord and they also needed to understand what their real need was. And so before restoration and blessing could come, God's people needed to realize that they needed to be cleansed. They needed to be cleansed. And so here's the gospel according to Haggai in 14 verses. The gospel according to Haggai in 14 verses. Number one, people are defiled. Number two, the consequences of sin and judgment are real. And number three, our only hope is the sovereign grace of God. That's quite simple, isn't it? Number one, people are defiled. Number two, the consequences of sin and judgment are real. And number three, our only hope is the sovereign grace of God. Let's think about that first point. Look at verse 10. On the 24th day of the ninth month in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet. Now, according to that date, this was a time of expectation. Uh, you see, around this time, people would have finished sowing their winter crops. So they're waiting, they're expecting things to grow. Now, you remember that in the past, God had disciplined his people by withholding their crops, by withholding their produce. But now things were different. They had obeyed the Lord. They had corrected their priorities. They had begun to build. They even received encouragement from the Lord. And in that situation, it would have been fairly easy for someone to surmise, you know, I think we deserve some blessing now. I think so. Now, if you're reading Haggai for the first time, and if you're not careful, especially if you don't read Haggai in, in light of the entire story of the Bible, you could come away thinking, ah, so this is how I get right with God. You obey him, 
and he becomes friendly and encouraging. This is how you get into his good books. Do what he wants, and he even gives you fantastic promises of future glory. Well, maybe that's the message of Haggai. Well, friends, nothing could be further from the truth. Not only is this not the message of Haggai, it's not the message of the Bible. Look at verse 11. Thus says the Lord of hosts, ask the priests about the law. <laughs> That's a strange way to begin talking to his people, don't you think? It's as though God knew what they were thinking. And he wants them to self-correct by asking them questions. Go and ask the priests what the law says about this. Now the priests were official interpreters of the law of God, particularly with regard to the sacrifices and ceremonial purity. So not only does this point to the authority of the law, the authority of God's word to speak to whatever they were thinking about, but it also tells you that this is something that they should have been aware of. This knowledge is already available to them in the law. Go and ask the priests. And here's the question. Look at verses 12 to 13. If someone carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, so put some meat in the, in the robe that you're wearing, and touches with his fold, so the meat's not touching this thing, it's the meat's in the fold and the cloth is touching something else, and touches with his fold bread or stew or wine or oil or any kind of food, does it, the thing that you touch, does it become holy? And the priest answered and said, no. Then Haggai said, if someone who is unclean by contact with a dead body, so if you go and touch a dead body, you're unclean, and then you go and touch any of these things, bread, stew, wine, oil, if you touch any of these things, does it? become unclean and the priest answered and said it does become unclean so you see Haggai's question is about the transferability of holiness via a third degree of contact meat cloth cloth oil right the transferability of holiness via a third degree of contact you dead person you and then you oil or wine right the issue here is about ceremonial and ritual purity if you take holy meat meat that has been sacrificed meat that has been offered in the fold of your garment and your garment touches some other food it does not rub off it does not rub off that thing does not become holy just because you do that on the other hand if you have become defiled, ceremonially uncleaned, because you touched a dead body, then anything you touch becomes unclean or defiled. So the priests get it right on both counts. Defilement is transferable, holiness is not. Did you get that? Defilement is transferable, holiness is not. So why does God want them to know that? What's the point? Well, the point is this, verse 14. Then Haggai answered and said, so it is with this people. 
and with this nation before me, declares the Lord. And so with every work of their hands and what they offer there is unclean. Just imagine the faces of these people. This would have shocked the community. Remember, these were the people who were about the task of, they were going about the task of restoring the temple. They were touching, they were building God's holy house. But instead of viewing them or instead of calling them holy, the Lord calls them unclean, defiled. Their uncleanness will contaminate everything they do and whatever they offer is unclean, everything. Remember earlier, God had promised his presence to his remnant and he reminded them of his covenant and his spirit. He pointed them to the reality of future promises and glory and peace. Why does he now remind them of their impurity and defilement and inadequacy? Why this tension? The answer is simple. The Lord wanted them to know that they needed to be cleansed because they were sinners just like you and me. They were sinners just like you and me. That was the point of the promises that there's a restoration coming for sinners. Beloved, these verses point us to the stark reality that our fundamental problem is not simply that we are ignorant or absent-minded. We're not people who sometimes get their priorities mixed up. We're not basically good people who sometimes demonstrate bad behavior. No, we're basically bad people who sometimes pretend to be good. We're sinners by nature. We are, as the text says, unclean. You see, this uncleanness is not a disease that consumes unsuspecting people. It is a moral uncleanness, a perverse rebellion for which we are wholly responsible. See, God created men and women in his image to reflect his character and glorify him in every way, but we chose to do otherwise. We have all sinned and rebelled against a holy and righteous God. Our sin is so pervasive that it has affected all our faculties like a drop of poison spreading in a glass of clear water. Our will, our emotions, our imaginations, our motives, our desires, our actions, they're all tainted with sin. This doesn't mean that every person is the worst that they can be, but it does mean that we are sinners by our very nature. It's not just what we do that makes us sinners. It's who we are. It's who we are. And every ceremonial law under the Old Covenant, get this, every ceremonial law under the Old Covenant was meant to remind people of that very thing. Every law was meant to give us pictures, stark reminders of how pervasive our sin is. We are defiled. See, Paul reminds us of this in Romans 3, 10 to 12. That all men are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. 
together they have become worthless no one does good not even one not even one altogether worthless friends this is our state our condition apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ now if you're not a christian if you do not have a saving relationship with Jesus Christ i want to ask you what do you have to bring to the table before a holy god according to god's evaluation your good deeds are unclean defiled your personal assessment of yourself defiled your conception of the universe and how the world works tainted your conscience polluted the money you give to charity stained by your impure motives your fasting profane your moral values and upbringing defiled because we're sinners by nature everything we do is unclean you know we can laugh at the at the people who are dipping themselves in in holy waters to wash away their defilement but i find it interesting that those people who can who can laugh at that can also say things like you know i grew up in a christian home my mother's a christian my dad's a christian i went to a christian school i think i'm okay you're not holiness will not rub off on you you cannot get right with god by associating yourself with other christians or engaging in christian activities like even coming to church it may appease your guilt but everything you do and offer is defiled friends apart from jesus christ we find ourselves in a terrible terrible condition god is not for you he is against you apart from christ we are sinners in the hands of a holy god And if you think you will escape his judgment, you're greatly mistaken. You need to know that the only thing standing between hell, between eternal punishment and you is God himself. Is God himself. See God's wrath is his settled opposition towards all that is sinful, towards all that is morally impure and unclean. And friends his anger his wrath is fierce and everlasting. What will you do on judgment day? Now the common response to this is oh but God is love. A loving God would not send people to hell. Friends remember who we are talking about. The God of the scriptures, the one true God, the only God is perfectly and infinitely holy and just and righteous. He is not like you. He is not like you. His love is a holy love. His love is a just love, and holy love must be able to get angry. It is a sensible and justified anger. John Enser in his book The Great Work of the Gospel gives us an illustration to help us understand this. 
that God's love and his wrath are two sides of the same coin. If you've never thought about it this way, think about it. God's love and his wrath are two sides of the same coin. Listen to what Enzer says. He writes, if I came across a man raping a woman, I cannot love both of them in the same way and neither does God. Love is inherently moral in character. I cannot go up to the struggling, terrorized woman and her overpowering assailant and say, I love you both just the same and so does God. He does not want you to harm this girl, but please don't think he's angry at you right now because God is love. He does not get mad. Isn't such love amazing? The woman would denounce my love as sick and worthless and even cowardly and evil. She would know that love must have a passionate commitment to right over wrong. It must be willing to vindicate and disarm, to reward and to punish. Love must have a passionate commitment to right over wrong. Now, if we expect that of people, how much more of God? Friend, when a holy God expresses holy love, he will vindicate himself. There will be justice because he hates evil. So you're right. God is love. That's why he will judge you. That's why he will judge sinners. Ask any victim of abuse. Ask any casualty of war. Any casualty of violence. And they will tell you that if God is a loving God, he will settle every score in the end. There will be a judgment. In the end, he will make all things right. So what makes you think that you will get away with what you said, thought, and did every day that he let you live on his planet? Friends, I tell you this not on the basis of human experience, but on the authority of God's word. It is appointed for men to die once, and then comes the judgment. The reality of the consequences of sin and judgment are not just things to be expected in the future, but can be even seen in some sense now. Which brings us to our second point. The consequences of sin and judgment are real. God reminded his people of their disobedience and the consequences of their disobedience. Look at verses 15 to 17. Now then, consider from this day onward, before stone was placed upon stone in the temple of the Lord, how did you fare? When one came to a heap of 20 measures, there were but 10. When one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there were but 20. I struck you and all the products of your toil with blight and with mildew and with hail, yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. So you see here that the Lord reminded them of the consequences of their sin and his covenant curses that they had experienced because of their prior disobedience. These people had not only returned after a long period of judgment, that was the exile, but upon their return, they spent 15 years pursuing their own desires instead of fulfilling their covenant obligations to build the temple. 
And even though God struck them hard because of their sin, that did not grab their attention. Looking at how bad things were all around them, they were not spiritually sensitive to the fact that the Lord was displeased with them. They expected the harvest to be plenty for all the work they did. And then they were frustrated to find how little grain the ground actually yielded. They came expecting 20 heaps, but found only 10. Wine production was down. The crops were brutalized by the scorching heat and hailstone and fungus. And yet it didn't, they did not see God's displeasure. And they did not repent. Yet you did not turn to me, declares the Lord. They did not repent until God intervened and spoke. You know, this was typical of how the people of Israel responded to covenant curses. Listen to the prophet Amos. Amos chapter 4 verse 9. I struck you with blight and mildew, your many gardens and your vineyards, your fig trees and your olive trees, the locusts devoured, yet you did not return to me, declares the Lord. This is the Lord saying, this is the Lord reminding them that sin will incur his judgment. There are consequences for sin. Friend, if you're not a Christian, let me tell you this, you cannot run from this God. As you look around and examine your life, don't you see that there are things beyond your control? Don't you see that there must be more to life than you and your pursuits? Haven't you already seen, perhaps, that sin has consequences? Now, I know that some of you might be thinking, oh, this is all rubbish. My life is fine. I enjoy what I do. I don't need God. There's no wrath of God being poured out on me. No judgment falling from the sky. Well, my friend, let me tell you this. Sometimes God reveals his wrath by letting you do what you want to do. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth, who do not turn to Christ, who suppress the truth by their wickedness in this way. Romans 1.24 He gives them up to their own sinful desires and shameful lusts. God will give you up and you will destroy yourself. You are lost in darkest night and you feel fine about it. That is the blinding effect of sin. And that sin that you love, that promises you joy and life, will only lead you to your grave. And you will stand before the judgment of God one day. Your only hope, your only hope is that if this God himself might somehow save you. And friend, the good news is he has made a way. He has made a way, which brings us to our third point. Our only hope is sovereign grace. Look at verses 18 to 19. Consider from this day onward, from the 24th day of the ninth month. Since the day that the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid, consider, is the seed yet in the barn? Indeed, the vine, the fig tree, the pomegranate, and the olive tree have yielded nothing. 
the Lord hearkens his people to think back to those days when things began to go downhill for them. Back to the time when the foundation of the Lord's temple was laid. And he calls them to, to remember, think, think carefully. Don't just think of it as a milestone that you crossed. But even now, as you continue to work from this day forward, reflect on your sinful nature. Think about your spiritual defilement and the reality of the holiness of your covenant God as you build the temple. See, they had done all that they could, sowed every seed. There was none left in the barn. The crops and the fruit trees had not yielded anything. This was evidence of God's judgment. But then God tells them something amazing. Here it is, verse 19. But from this day on, I will bless you. Friends, the reality of God's blessing comes not because of what we do for him, but what he chooses to do for us. From this day on, I will bless you. God, in a magnificent declaration of sovereign grace, tells his people that covenant blessings would indeed come. And in the language of covenant blessing for Old Testament Israel, that would entail a reversal of the curses and agricultural prosperity. But if you're tracking along with this text, you should not only recognize that blessing is an act of sovereign grace from God. You should see that, but you should also ask something else. You should also ask the question, how can the Lord, this holy God, how can the Lord who is altogether holy do this? How can God be justified in blessing a defiled people? Look at verses 20 to 21. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth. So God speaks again on the same day, but this time to Zerubbabel, the governor of Judah. And Haggai tells us that Zerubbabel is the son of Shealtiel, and that places him in David's line. And he is to be informed that the God of the armies of heaven, the Lord of hosts, was about to step in as a warrior and do something supernatural, shake the heavens and the earth. This is a picture of God's powerful intervention. And what was he going to do? Look at the verse. Shake the heavens and the earth and, verses 22 to 23, and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I am about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. On that day declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. The Lord of hosts was, was going to crush, to topple, to dethrone, to vanquish, to subdue, to subjugate, and to bring to nothing any throne or kingdom that would stand in his way, that would stand against his plan and promises. And all of this was included in the blessing and restoration of his people. And on that day, the day when God would do this, Zerubbabel would feature prominently as God's chosen and appointed authority and instrument, God would make him his signet ring. Now in those days, when a king wanted to seal 
a legal document. He would put a piece of wax on a deed and then he would press it with his signet ring. And when you took the ring off the deed, you would see the exact image on the wax. That image stood, represented, and stood for the king's authority and power. And God says that he will make Zerubbabel that signet ring. Somehow, God would fulfill his blessings for his people through this man, Zerubbabel. Now, to these exiles, the very mention of the signet ring would have reminded them of something. God was signaling a reversal of a curse made long ago. Listen to the judgment on Zerubbabel's grandfather years ago. Jeremiah 22, verses 24 to 25. As I live, declares the Lord, though Jehoiakim, or Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. And here you see a great reversal, a reversal of grace. And this reversal tells us that God's blessing had already started to break in. God even refers to Zerubbabel as his servant, his chosen. It's a messianic title. And you immediately start to think that, oh, this is going to happen. In fact, look at the way God stakes his might and his power on his word. Did you see how Haggai records three times for us in that verse? Declares the Lord of hosts, declares the Lord, declares the Lord of hosts. So you can stake your life on this. It's going to happen. Even if Zerubbabel is merely a governor, how can this fail if God was going to be behind it? Now, with the backdrop of political turmoil in their day, the Israelites would have been familiar with this language of shaking. But did you notice that language in verse 22? Look at verse 22. He says, I am about to overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down. Everyone by the sword of his brother. Now, where have we heard that before? When Israel crossed the Red Sea. God threw the Egyptians into confusion and he overthrew Pharaoh's chariots and their horsemen. Not one of them survived when the Lord brought the waters crashing down on them. And here's what the Lord means by that. When he uses this language and points it to the future, to that day, God says, you've seen me do this, I'll do it again. There will be a deliverance and a formation of a new people, just like the first exodus. This means there's going to be a second. A second exodus is coming. Brothers, the fulfillment of every promise depends on the Lord. Blessing and restoration depends on him. Did you see that in the verses? I will bless, I will shake, I will overthrow, I will destroy, I will take you, I will make you, for I have chosen you. This is all the Lord's doing. Now, all of this is wonderful, but it still doesn't answer our question. How is God justified in blessing a defiled people? Not only that, but as far as we know, Zerubbabel never became king. He did not usher in a triumphant period of rule accompanied by the overthrow of Gentile nations. So did Haggai's prophecy fail? 
Did God's word fail? Well, the answer to both those questions is found in the New Testament. Now, when you read the genealogy of Jesus, you can look at Matthew 1. When you read his genealogy, guess who shows up? Zerubbabel. And many more in his line after him, all the way to Jesus. That's Matthew 1, 11 to 16, 14 generations. You see, Haggai's prophecy was right. Haggai's promises given to Zerubbabel were true of him in a limited way. But they find their ultimate expression and fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the greater Zerubbabel. See, like many other Old Testament prophecies, these had both a, a near and distant dimension. Jesus was the one to whom these prophecies pointed to. He was God's chosen one, the Messiah, who would bring blessing to Israel and the nation. He is the one who would bring human history to its climactic end. He is the one who will overthrow every kingdom and usher in his kingdom and off his kingdom there will be no end. But then we do have another question, don't we? How is it that Jesus is the key for understanding how a holy God blesses a defiled people? Well, the answer to that is found in Romans 3, 25 and 26, that passage that was read for us. Romans 3, 25 to 26 tells us that God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Jesus was our wrath bearer. That's what propitiation means. That Jesus Christ came, that the Son of God entered into this world, he took on human flesh and he lived a perfectly obedient life to the will of his Father and then he died as a substitute for the sins of his people. He absorbed the wrath of God and he paid the penalty for the sins of his people. And friends, here's the good news. If you repent of your sins and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead and confess that he is Lord, you will be saved. You will be blessed in him. That is the testimony of every believer, of every Christian. That while we were yet defiled and while we were yet uncleaned and sinful, Christ the Holy One died for us. See, the text tells us in Romans that God did this to show God's righteousness, to show that God is just because in his divine forbearance, his patience, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This means that if you were a believer living in Old Testament times, you were able to be blessed by God because he was blessing you in Christ who would come later and pay the just penalty for your sins in the future. And we are blessed as we trust in the one who paid for our sins in the past. You see, the cross demonstrates to all that God is righteous. He is holy and just. No one's sin gets pushed under the carpet, but is fully judged on the cross. In this way, God shows himself to be both just and forgiving, both holy and loving. See, that's how Jesus is the answer to this dilemma of how can God be justified in blessing an unclean people. And we are given rich pictures of this even in the New Testament. You know, the Gospel of Luke tells us a story 
that when Jesus was in one of the cities, there came to him a man full of leprosy. According to the ceremonial law, he was what? Unclean. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. That story is in Luke 5, 12 to 13. So here was the greater temple who can make you clean. When you take your defilement to him, he doesn't become unclean. No, he makes you clean. He is the one who is able to sanctify you and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified or made holy, his church. He declares you righteous and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, those who are united with him through faith. You see, his righteousness is not spatially transmitted to us. It doesn't rub off on us. It is imputed to us by faith in him. Our sins are credited to him and his righteousness is credited to our account when we believe. We are covered with a righteousness, not our own. A perfect righteousness that is acceptable to God, the righteousness of his son. The only righteousness that is acceptable to God. And we receive that by faith. Now that is a blessing. That is a blessing. One that we experience now and one that extends into eternity. So beloved, I want to leave you with four truths for your encouragement and endurance from the book of Haggai. Four truths for your encouragement and endurance from Haggai. Number one. As we sum up all that we've heard from Haggai, here's the first truth for your encouragement and endurance. Remember this, in Christ, we have been restored and blessed. In Christ, we have been restored and blessed. Remember who you are in Christ. We are sinners saved not by our obedience or our virtues or our prayers or our tears. We're saved by the sovereign grace of God alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. He declares us to be clean by covering us with the robes of his righteousness. This is what it means to be truly blessed. In Christ, you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Go home and, and read Ephesians 1 and meditate on those blessings that are available to believers. Right? From your election, to the gift of the Holy Spirit. You're not cursed, but blessed, reconciled and at peace with God. In every trial, remember that, in every trial you are blessed. In every sickness you are blessed. When you suffer loss, you are blessed. If you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. If you only give, give, give and never receive, you are blessed. Blessed in life, and blessed in death. God is for you. God is for you. Don't let anyone fool you into thinking that any sort of curse can cause you harm. Don't buy into worldly definitions of what it means to be blessed. You know, people consider themselves to be blessed only when they're healthy or if everything's going well. Reject that idea. An unbeliever may have everything going well for him. But outside of Christ, remember, he is lost and under a curse. 
Whereas on the other hand, a Christian may be suffering and have lost it all, but he has an imperishable, undefiled, and unfading inheritance. He is blessed by the Father. Beloved, meditate on true blessings. Meditate on true blessings of what it means to, to know Jesus Christ, to trust and understand his word, to have the privilege of telling others about him, to enjoy fellowship with the saints, to grow in Christ-likeness, to correct and counsel, to encourage and exhort, to build up the body, and to suffer for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of Christian obedience. Meditate on these blood-bought blessings available to you. Revel in them, rejoice in them. Read the Beatitudes in Matthew 5. Rejoice in those. Number two, remember that we need his presence and his promises to empower us to build his church. We need his presence and his promises to empower us to build his church. And if we are going to do this, we must address our hearts. We must consider our ways. Don't think of your conversion as a milestone that you've crossed. No, consider your hearts. Consider your sinful ways. Consider how polluting sin can be. Consider how a little leaven leavens a whole lump. Consider how bad company corrupts good morals. Defilement spreads, doesn't it? We must consider our ways. We must reflect on our priorities and our loves often. In short, we must take sin seriously because we know the one who saves us from our sins. So beloved, don't be conformed to your former passions, but be holy as he who has called you is holy. The holiness that God calls his church to is the obedience of faith. Church, God has called us to fight sin together. He has given us of his Holy Spirit to kill sin and to pursue holiness. And even though we have been set apart as God's people, his holy temple, you and I both know that there is an enemy within, our old sinful nature. Let's not hide sin, but bring it to light. You know, the Puritans used to say, he who hides a rebel in his house is a traitor to the crown. So help each other. Encourage one another to see your idols, to see your sins and turn to Christ. As you think about your sins, remember, you can do one of two things. You can either wallow in your guilt and self-pity and destroy yourself. Or you can see your sin, rejoice in your redemption, flee to Christ, confess and repent. Which will it be for you? Help each other. Pull each other out from the self-destructive well of despair and pride and lead one another to Jesus. Don't shrink back but hold fast to Jesus. Draw near to God and seek him because of the hope of the gospel. Truth number three. Remember that Christ is the rock on which you stand, not your obedience. Christ is the rock on which you stand, not your obedience. See, our obedience does not justify us. His obedience justifies us. So love him. Trust him. Let your obedience flow out of faith in him. Remember the gospel and fight self-righteousness. Remember that the strength to follow God's commands cannot be self-generated. He gives you grace. 
he gives you grace. Friends, we do not obey in order to be accepted by God. No, rather we obey because we have been accepted by God. And he is our father. We have been blessed by him. We love because God first loved us. We forgive because we have been forgiven. We love the church because Christ loved her first. And don't forget this. Know that the Lord is pleased with the good works of his children. The father is pleased with the good works of his children because they are done in dependence on his son. The Lord cannot fail to love and embrace the good things that he himself works in his children through his spirit. I'll say that again. The Lord cannot fail to love and embrace the good things that he himself works in his children through his spirit. Never forget that. And then finally, number four. Don't forget the sovereign in sovereign grace. Don't forget the sovereign in sovereign grace. See, God in his wisdom providentially orders our circumstances that we might labor faithfully for his glory. Let that be encouraged. Let that encourage you when times are hard and obedience is challenging. And when he enables and empowers you to be faithful and with one another's help, rejoice and celebrate his goodness. Know with great confidence that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the power of God for your growth and mine. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And we thank you for Jesus and his cleansing blood. Lord, we pray that you would strengthen us and enable us to hold fast to him, to be rooted and grounded in his love and be zealous to be instruments of grace in the lives of one another. May we mourn sin and celebrate holiness. May we speak less of ourselves and speak more of Jesus. Fill us with your spirit, O Lord, and make us faithful builders of your church. In Christ's name we pray.